0: The talk you're about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Raitsen.
1: Uh, today is the uh, 5th of June 2018, <coughs> and um, just under a month from now, we're going to have our uh, winter jukai ceremony, Majoriki Jukai. And in, in between now and then, we have uh, two teishos and we're going to have three sessions on Sundays of Dharma study. It um, really is a, a way of preparing ourselves for the Jukai ceremony, sort of directly and indirectly. And on our, on our study sessions on Sundays, we're going to be really um, exploring some of the basic teachings of Buddhism. Um, It's important that we that we understand what we know what's behind our sitting practice um, so that we can be um, so that we can uh, not go astray in our in uh, what we think we're doing and our Zazen really is to help us see through the mirage of self this kind of optical illusion that um, we conjure up and then act out of. And um, the teachings that we're going to look at um, are presented, interestingly enough, as, as numbered lists. And if you look into a lot of the, of the dharma, it, it's full of these numbered lists, uh, the Buddha-like lists, apparently. But what they were for, and what they're very helpful in, is memory memorizing. Um, you don't have to memorise them, but it's much easier to remember these teachings um, uh, because they're, they're grouped together in meaningful ways, and, and um, we can remember that there are three of this or four of this, and then it's easier to bring them to mind. And, and that's why we call this of course Buddhism by Numbers. But um, it's pointing to the fact that this stuff is not just theory. It's, it's practical wisdom, it's ways um, we can inform what we do in our daily lives. Um, and, what, and it can also inform our practice as well, our sitting. And here we can understand, inform in two different ways. It's both, um, these teachings give shape to what we do and they and clarify they, uh, what we do, we, the, this understanding behind what we're doing in our sitting. This um, may sound, uh, like I said, odds with the the classical Zen, um, kind of, the party line on on these things. You know, there's this famous saying attributed to Bodhidharma um, that Zen is a is a teaching outside the scriptures, not dependent on words and letters. But I think that this teaching was aimed at. People who were very attached to the sutras and to the words and the letters and needed to give them up, not so much to us who have not come up, grown up in a Buddhist culture, and actually have to learn about the the sutras and the teachings um, as a form of of guidance. We're not, we're not, kind of, we're not really attached to them, so we don't really need to need to let them go so much. So um, it's, it's. it's important to have some understanding of what's behind what we do so that we're going in the right direction. But in parallel with these th- these Sunday's uh, Dharma study sessions that we're going to have, we have these two te- te- shows, one tonight and one two nights, two weeks from now. And what I thought we'd do in these ones is look into um, the ten cardinal precepts: five this week, and, and and five in two weeks' time. So another numbered list, but again helpful for um, remembering them. And so hopefully at the end of this month, if you um, have been through these these different um, sessions, then um, you'll understand what what Jukai is, where it's coming from, and and how it connects, how the precepts connect to. Um, our the basic Buddhist teachings and to our Zen training. So some of you um, have never been to jikai before so it um, might be helpful just to say a little bit about what it is. Um, this, the central part is taking vows and it's the nearest thing we have in Buddhism to a kind of initiation as Buddhist. And um, there are sixteen different vows that we take. We take refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Um, that's the f- the first three, and then we make three general resolutions. We we, evolve, we you say I resolve to to um, refrain from evil. I resolve to do good, and I resolve to liberate all living beings. Um, and then. Finally, there are the ten cardinal precepts, and they're really just a more detailed elaboration on, on those three general resolutions that we've made, and that you could describe them, I suppose, as a kind of um, guidelines for skillful life. And so they're, the, they're really the core, and that's what we're going to start to look at today. Um, in the ceremony itself, um, when we take these vows together, There are some other things that are kind of wrapped around this core of the precepts. And um, the the evening starts, we always have it as an evening ceremony so that it happens in the dark. Um, The evening starts with just the zendo being open for sitting. And um, it's sort of like a way of preparing ourselves for for the ceremony. But it's also pointing to the fact that that um our sitting plays a role in our being able to keep the these precepts these vows that we take um, they they equip us to live more skillfully and that's an important aspect of of our Sazen. we we become more um um uh, vigilant, more more, we notice more what's going on, we have there's more space around our our impulses so that we can choose how we respond to them more often than not. Um, the, the, then the actual ceremony itself starts and it starts with offerings, offerings to the teacher. And um, this is another important aspect of of, of the practice we, we kick off the ceremony with this expression of gratitude for the dharma and the way we express that is through, is through um, support for uh, the teacher who's um, presenting the dharma or sharing the dharma with people and, and uh, leading us in the precept ceremony. And then, after that, again before we do our actual Jukai ceremony, taking the vows, we have this general repentance gata, and it goes like this, all evil actions committed by me since time immemorial, stemming from greed, anger, and delusion, arising from body, speech, and mind, I now repent having committed. And we, and we actually repeat this, this um, verse um, nine times, and uh, in Zen, in Buddhism often, um, anything, if it's an important, if it's something important, we do it three times. So we, um, we we bow three times at the end of, you know, do three full bows at the end of a, uh, an evening sitting, we'll be doing that later, we do the four vows through three times, and then if something's very important, we do it nine times, three times three. And um, you could understand this repentance as being um, a clearing the slate. We um, may have in mind specific things that we're regretful of, um, and actually in in New Year's Jukai we're able to speak those publicly in in front of everybody. But for this one, it's just done in a general sense. But it's an expression of our desire to kind of take to put our best foot forward to to renew our commitment to um, harmlessness which is what the precepts are about and um, the line in this this gata this verse is important time immemorial since time immemorial so it's a very big uh, kind of clearing of the slate we're not just talking about what we can remember but also um, all the times we've been foolish in different ways or greedy or or hateful, um, all the ones we don't remember as well. So it's a deep kind of um, repentance. You could say it's a kind of almost, we, we, we repent for our mothers and fathers and, and grandparents and great-great-grandparents and so forth. That's um, recognizing are the the, the, the pain producing um, thoughts and, and words and actions that have gone on through generations and of course we can also understand it in terms of um, previous lives if that's something that we um, incorporate in our understanding um, after we do this repentance, then we, have, we do the 16 precepts. We're going to get into the 10 in a minute. And then we end where, where, when once everybody's done them all, we do them, we repeat them all three times, all these different vows. We end with the um, my saying, you're all now members of the Buddha's family. And sometimes in the sutras, when the Buddha is talking to his uh, assembly, he will say, um, for instance in the Diamond Sutra he says this, he will address people as sons and daughters of good family. And uh, noble family, sometimes it's translated, and this has nothing to do with having noble blood or or high status or wealth or anything like that. It's um, nobility that's based on noble um, actions, noble thoughts. Um, we call the most fundamental teachings of, of Buddhism the, the, the um, four noble truths, and it might be more accurate to say four ennobling truths, that when we understand these things, then we are ennobled by them. Our suffering is no longer meaningless, for example. But when I say this at the end of the ceremony, I'm I'm referring to the fact that we have Re-entered the Buddha's family in through our commitment to these different um, uh, actions. Um, with the and behind that is the understanding that um, when we don't act like a Buddha, um, and we all inevitably do break the precepts because they're very very they set the bar very high, um, that we're when we're, we're not a Buddhist anymore, and so we're we're. Saying right, I'm I'm going to do my best to be Buddhist—not <laughs> a good Buddhist or a bad Buddhist, but just a Buddhist. Um, uh, so so uh, yes, if we're not if we're not acting like a Buddha, then we can't really say that we're Buddhist. And that's the end of the the, the ceremonial part, and then after that, we we go out and share a meal together, and um, that's an important part of the whole thing too because presets are about how we relate to each other, and they're really about um, creating a community, creating a harmonious uh, community. So um, we express that aspiration through enjoying a meal together. So just... um, little bit more about how the precepts fit into, um, into whole of the whole scheme of things in, in Buddhist teaching. And um, the whole of the teaching is, is um, usually it's divided up into three kind of parts. Um, there's the wisdom part, the concentration or med- meditation part or mental balance is sometimes referred to, and then there's the skillful conduct. So these, these three are prajna, samadhi, and shila. And shila is the, the skillful conduct part, is seen as like the foundation. If you don't build your foundation well, um, then nothing else really will work in your house. And so the, at the base are uh, uh, is the, is, uh, the precepts, the, the, um, the ethical guidelines. And if you think about it, it makes sense because if we're causing harm, if we're creating suffering in our lives, whether it's for towards ourselves or towards others, then a mind will be agitated. It will be, it will be um, very, very hard, impossible, actually, to to um, completely pacify it, to completely um, uh, calm it. And if we're acting out of, out of we're acting um, out of an in our delusion of self and other, and if we're repeating that, then we're reinforcing that delusion. So uh, without with without that basis of ethics, we can't really be um, cultivating prajna, the wisdom aspect of. Of the path, either. Um, so they all, they all, these three, all work together. And and on the other side, if we are acting out of um, uh, concern for others and um, doing beneficial things, then will be our mind will be joy- joyful and peaceful, and then samadhi will come out of that that good strong base. And of course, if we develop samadhi, um, the clarity, the mental balance, then out of that comes the wisdom or the insight. So, um, these three are, um, can, be a, um, can be like a, a virtuous cycle. And obviously, when, when you have more wisdom with more insight, then it's easier to keep the precepts, because you, you can see how it works can see how the whole process works. So that's why they're um, important and why we um, revisit them um, again and again. So to just, we're going to look tonight at the first five of the ten precepts. But just to clear up something before we get into them in detail. Um, Because there are ten, we might think they're like the Ten Commandments, and they're not. Um, the Commandments implicit in that is that there's a supreme being telling us that we have to act in a certain way. And um, there is no supreme being um, uh, handing these these precepts down to us. Um, rather, they're, rather than bringing so much prescriptive there, they're descriptive of awakened behavior, so um, they they describe how we would act if we really saw things clearly. Um, another thing that might might mislead us into thinking they're like the commandments is that they all uh, originally um, started with not, um, and. Um, Our teacher's teacher, my teacher's teacher, Roshi Kaplow, felt that they needed a positive side. So the versions that we have start with the negative and then they have a positive sort of interpretation of that. But if you think about it, um, actually not doing something leaves more room and in the sense that everything that's not included in that is is okay. So that's much more than if you try and um, say what you do do and then you have to co- maybe cover a lot more ground. Um, but I would also just add a proviso there that um, precepts, ethical guidelines, need to be, to be regularly reviewed because um, things change in society. And so it's important to, um, to kind of update them, and we'll be doing a little bit of that tonight. Here's an example. Um, When we were in Thailand, back in, um, I'm trying to think when it was, it was in the the, um, end of the 80s, 1990 maybe, um, we noticed that there were a lot of monks smoking. And um, we asked about it, and, and because it seemed kind of odd, um, they're supposed to be somewhat aesthetic, ascetic and we discovered it's not in the Venoyan no smoking, there wasn't any smoking then and so there wasn't a rule about it and um, that's an example of where you might want to add something uh, but there are also examples of where just mores change and, and um, need to have, um, because of those societal changes need to have a look at how you, how you interpret the precept and we'll do a little bit of that. another way of understanding the precepts is um, that they're protective they protect us and they protect others. Um, they they protect us from um, from things that can be very um, damaging to our practice because if we if we do things which reinforce the sense of separation then that's going to be very unhelpful so if we if we imagine ourselves as being and this this goes for all of us include myself in this as um, as being like a little fairly delicate seedling in the Dharma I mean we're 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 pretty much all beginners and if you plant a little seedling it can be pretty tender at the start and so it needs some protection, it needs something around it to stop um, different animals coming and eating it. Um, but as we as we mature in the practice then um, we may not need the precept as a sort of protective Protective fence around us, you could say. Um, as as we get to be a little bit stronger, but go from being seedlings to saplings, um, then that external preset may not be so necessary because we will have internalized it more. We'll get we'll get more skillful as we go along. Okay, so now just to turn, and I forgot to put the clock on, so I'm... Um, give me a reminder, Adrian, if I go on for too long. Um, so we're going to look at the first five of the ten now. And these first five are um, shared by pretty much all schools of Buddhism, right across uh, from um, classical Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, right through uh, Mahayana, Vajrayana um, and they go back, they're, they're ancient, they really go back really to the time of the Buddha and those of you coming to the study groups will be looking into how you, we can see the, sort of the, the, um, the precepts in, in the Eightfold Path, which is the Buddha's original teaching, how they came out, out of that really. Uh, But we'll start off, I'll just um, go through them, all five, and then we'll look at each one briefly. Uh, I resolve not to kill, but to cherish all life. I resolve not to take what is not given, but to respect the property of others. I resolve not to engage in harmful sexual relations, but to be loving and responsible. I resolve not to lie, but to speak the truth. I resolve not to cause others to take intoxicants, nor to do so myself, but to keep the mind clear." So there's different ways of looking at these precepts, and um, we're trying to cover a lot of ground in this talk, but we're going to look at each of them in three different ways. the first one is just the literal interpretation. Look what they what they seem to be saying at face value, and as I say, this this um, needs to be reinterpreted regularly. Uh, then, um, so there's the there's the literal ter- interpretation, but that's important. We want to um, take the message that they're giving us on that literal level. But then, is what's known as the Mahayana view, which is um, looking more, not so much the letter of the law, but more the spirit of the precept. And, what, and And sometimes appearances can be deceiving. We may be either breaking the precept when we think we're not, or um, uh, also the breaking of the precept may be actually, if you look deep, more deeply into it, keeping the precept, upholding the precept. So we'll come up with some examples to show that with these five. And then the final um, view of these precepts is, we call it the non-dual approach, of seeing, seeing it from the enlightened perspective. And these are probably the ones that are the most illuminating for us, but they're also, um, it's also dangerous just, just to, to reason from that point if you haven't al- already had that experience of really understanding them from a non-dual point of view through some insight. If we do look at their, the, them from the literal, pre- literal perspective, then um, they're sort of common sense forms of abstinence, you could say, that are similar to those found in other many other religions and um, other cultures and um, They're pretty common-sense kinds of things. Uh, So if we take up the first one, not to kill, but to cherish your life. Um, And this includes anything that that lives, not just um, human beings. It it includes um, all kinds of animals, um, insects, rodents, you name it. But we know that we all kill microorganisms when we probably when we drink, drink a glass of water so um, it is a matter of um, um, being aware of that we're not trying to um, live so in an extreme fashion that we try to avoid all of that, because essentially it's unavoidable. To eat is to be tied up in killing, even if we're uh, vegetarian or vegan, because um, organisms, different things, get killed when we we till the soil. Um, But the idea is to... um, live as harmlessly as is practical and especially to live with an attitude of um, avoiding harm. So if we say we um, uh, come across a cockroach that we don't smash it but we we catch it, pick it up and throw it outside Um, or put it outside. And when we, when we take care, it's, it's, it's surprising what we can do to avoid killing. There are exceptions. Um, some time ago we, we had a rat in the centre, and um, we tried different things to protect food and, and everything, but it was pretty persistent. in the end we, we trapped it. Um, we killed it. And um, we 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 talked about trapping it, whether that was the better option. But then, we where do you put it? Where it's not going to cause harm elsewhere because rats eat eat birds' eggs, and so we we eventually decided that this was the 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 most compassionate option was to to kill it using a humane trap and and be done with it, and not try and. Trap it and move it on to somewhere else where it might, in turn, get killed or be killing uh, birds' eggs and so forth. Um, but in other cases, you may find a way to coexist with rodents. We have ro- we have mice, growing family of mice in our house right now, and we uh, found a way now to coexist with them. They don't. We're not letting them allowed. Getting them up on the the kitchen bench, which is not, not hygienic, but uh, putting little bits of food outside for them, to pull them outside for that, and it's way of managing to coexist with them. And I came across, and if people are interested, there's quite an interesting piece on Tricycle's website on um, w- uh, living with different, um, uh, what we might call pests, and uh, in a way that is uh, as, as non-harming as possible. Um, there are various criteria that are traditionally used for how serious your, your um, breaking of this precept is. It's considered to be worse to kill a large animal, say, than a small one. And interestingly, because more effort is involved, you have to, you have to try harder to kill a bigger animal than you do a, a smaller one, and put your mind to it more, more fully. It's also seen as being worse to kill someone who's more virtuous. Um, and an- another um, factor is the intensity of your wish to kill. And this is, with all the precepts, this is seen as the, as the, the thing that creates the karma, is, is the will to kill. Um, break the precept whatever it is and so in determining how serious an, an, um, an infraction would would be is there considered to be five factors that, that one looks at to, to understand what has happened there has to be a living being obviously and there has to be a perception that um, of a living being thought of murder the action in carrying it out and the death as a result. So it would be less, it would be lighter if it didn't, you know, you you had all this plan and this plot and you you went ahead and did it but the person didn't die or the, the animal didn't die so that would be less um, onerous. Another one, part of this action of carrying it out is do you linger over it? Is it something sharp and shorter? is it it's something you've you, you. There's, there's elements of, of, of torture, torment, that is seen as being much more serious. Do you relish what you're doing, or are you, or are you, um, disgusted by what you do? All of these things weigh on what, how, what the, sh- the effect of the act is on your own mind. Um, somewhere, I'm, I'm not sure where I saw this. It was in a magazine. Um, it was an example of somewhere where they were trying to eradicate the possums, and they had a um, a competition for school children in how many um, possums they could um, trap, I guess. and then they were they were um, displaying the, the 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 corpses and the children were getting prizes for the ones who had had um, killed the, the most possums. and it was really quite distasteful to see it because. Um, we could argue from the Mahayana point of view that getting rid of possums in New Zealand is the best, you know, is the greatest, uh, good for the greatest number, so to speak, in protecting our our native forests, but in terms of the individual possum there's no fault there, and to to teach children to rejoice in this kind of killing is really uh, unfortunate. Um, So um, relishing, if even if you have to do it, not relishing it, but um, doing it with regret, is 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 healthier. Now, just to, as I said, these these we have these different ways of interpreting. I just want to look at the third way now, um, and this comes from these verses that we're going to look at with each one. Um, come from um, uh, a text that we work on in, in our, in our Koan curriculum called the Juju Kinkai and there are, there are two verses for, for each one which capture the the non-dual way of looking at these precepts. and one is called um, Bodhidharma's um, one mind precept, and the other is, is Dogen's teacher's teaching on the precepts. First of all, Bodhidharma is the one mind precept. This is for not to kill. Self-nature is inconceivably wondrous. In the everlasting dharma, not giving rise to the notion of extinction is called the precept of refraining from taking life. Not giving rise to the notion of extinction is called the precept of refraining from taking life. So if we can see uh, birth and death, and at the same time see the way in which um, there is no birth and death, that this is really keeping this precept. When, when we've completely dropped body and mind, um, then what is there to be born and what is there that dies? And Master Dogan's Master's teaching, in refraining from killing, you allow the Buddha's seed to grow and thereby inherit Buddha's w- wisdom. Do not destroy life. Refraining from killing, you allow the Buddha's seed to grow. And thereby inherit, inherit buddha's wisdom." If you really see the buddha nature in each living creature then um, we, would, we would naturally refrain from killing. We'd, we'd understand killing as being like um, cutting off our own hand Second one: I resolve not to take what is not given, but to respect the property of others. So of course, this one's about it's pretty straightforward. It's about about theft, robbery. But interestingly, in the commentary by Buddhagosa, who was um, about um, 500 AD um, commentator, he included um, dishonest bu- business practices and theft. Um, so uh, things like you could say tax avoiding, avoidance or insider trading or um, not paying a living wage and making a huge profit. This could all be classed under theft. And Buddhaghosa also included casting of lots, which um, I guess would, would today include um, pokies and lotteries. Ways in which we, where money is sort of d- dishonestly taken from people by deceiving them. Um, if we think about the, the spirit of this precept from the Mahayana point of view, um, we, could, we could probably see things like Robin Hood um, as being uh, affirming the, pre- the, the spirit of this precept. In situations where there is this sort of institutionalised theft from people to to um, take some of that back, could be uh, an example of the the keeping keeping the spirit of the precept. Certainly. If, um, uh, Pointing to injustice, and it'd be an important part of this. And some people may be f- familiar with Thich Nhat Hanh's versions of these precepts, which bring out the social side very, very um, prominently. If we look at the, if we look at the uh, Bodhidharma's one mind precept. He says, self-nature is inconceivably wondrous. Each one of them begins with this this statement. Self-nature is inconceivably wondrous. In the dharma in which nothing can be obtained, not giving rise to a thought of obtaining is called the precept of refraining from taking what is not given. Not giving rise to a thought of obtaining. Realizing that we have it all that we don't need to acquire anything from anywhere. You can see that these these really um, hold us to a very, very exalted um, standard. And then um, Dogen's teacher's teaching on the precepts. When the mind and objects are not discriminated, the gate of liberation opens. Again, pointing to this non-dual mind, the mind that doesn't divide things into uh, self and other, subject and object. When we experience mind and objects as being one, Okay, going on to the next one. I'm just having to touch on these briefly. I'll fit them all in. I resolve not to engage in harmful sexual relations, but to be loving and responsible. Now, traditionally, this um, if you're a lay person, this referred to not committing adultery. And if you were a monk or nun, it, it meant keeping your vows of celibacy. And then also it ruled out uh, any kind of sexual relations that were exploitative. Oh. Rape is, a, is an obvious one, Sexu- sexual relations involving different kinds of coercion or manipulation. Um, having sex with a minor would go in here, bestiality. So anywhere there was a, where there's a major power disparity um, and again, the original um, Buddhaghosa mentions um, mentions slaves, uh, not having sexual relations with slaves or prisoners of war. People who often uh, become uh, victims of, of sexual violence. Um, some some interpretations of this this precept would include um, homosexuality, but um, Certainly that isn't something we would include in here as long as um, relationships are not in any way coercive, just the same as with heterosexuality. I didn't have much success coming up with a, an example of a Mahayana um, uh, interpretation of this one, um, from the point of view of um, appearing to um, break this precept and not breaking it but I did um, remember a story that um, presents the other side of appearing to keep the precept and in fact breaking it and this, um, this is a story that's told about an old woman who was a patron of a monk um, who was living in a hut on her on her property and she was allowing him to live in this hut and she was taking him food regularly and she decided after many years that she wanted to test his understanding some of you will have heard of this story and so she sends her her young niece to deliver the food one day and instructs her what to do and she so she goes and takes him his food and then lies down with her head in his lap and said how does and says smiles at him and says how does this feel and he um stiffens um, in his whole manner, and says, um, "It's like a, a withered tree on a cold rock." And uh, when she goes back, when the, the niece goes back and tells the old, old woman this, she scoffs, says, "I've been what I've been feeding this guy for 20 years, and this is what he does." And then she goes up, kicks him out of his hut, and burns the hut down. Um, and we actually work on this as in among our preliminary priest, um, uh, koans and the question is why Why did she respond that way why did she think this was not uh, a, a, a a response a, a developed response to what happened and so the question that one looks at in the koan is what would have been a more appropriate response that would have um, upheld this, the precept of not misusing sexuality. It appears to be he's keeping his vow, but what's what's off with his response? So Bodhima Dharma's one mind precept with this um, precept self-nature is inconceivably wondrous in the dharma where there is nothing to grasp not giving rise to attachment is called the precept of refraining from harmful sexual relations not giving rise to attachment yes the Roshi comments on this everything is this dharma where there is nothing to grasp Everything is the dharma of codependent origination. In other words, we're all interconnected, all inter-are. It is like the reflection of the moon on water. Is there a way to hold on to things? Ordinary individuals dream of holding on and it becomes a nightmare. Amidst the struggle of liking this, disliking that, they attempt to tame their passions. How is this different from a dream? Recognising recognizing that all meetings end in partings. And um, Dogen's teaches teaching on the precepts. When the three wheels, and this is, refers to the agent, the object, and the action. So the actor, the thing acted upon, and the action. When the three wheels are seen as empty, there is nothing to desire. This is the way of the Buddhas. So if we really see into the empty nature of things then um, we won't get so attached to them. Um, Fourth one, not to lie but to speak the truth. So this one is again is pretty straightforward, not to abstain from false speaking. Um so behind this is the idea of the will to deceive somebody in, in by one's words or deeds um uh, deliberately falsifying things If we look at this one from the from the uh mahi, point of view then um the classic example here would be um, hiding somebody. From, you know, if you say say it was Nazi Germany, and you, you you there's somebody Jewish in your house, and the Gestapo comes to the door, then and you open the door and they they say is so and so here, and you say no, obviously you don't say yes, come in here he is, help yourself. Um, so that would be an example of the spirit, keeping to the spirit of the precept. Um, uh, another one somebody I heard somebody once give was, um, it's five minutes to seven. You're supposed to be somewhere at seven o'clock, and your partner comes out and has, says, "Does this look okay?" <laughs> and you say, "Yes, that looks great." <laughs> whether it does or whether it doesn't, right? Because you know you're not going, you don't want to if there's no no time to change you're not going to, to say oh no i don't think that looks so good so the white lie there not not um not a birth uh, a life or death matter but um, times when we when we um we don't give the brutal truth always So Bodhidharma's precept on the on this one about the truth. Self nature is inconceivably wondrous in the dharma that is beyond all expression. Not speaking even a single dead word is called the precept of refraining from not speaking the truth. So Honoring the truth, really, to, to honor what can't be said, as well. Not speaking even a single dead word. Uh, Robert Aitken, in his version of this, he says, "Not preaching a single word." So this is this is a this is a tough one for Zen teachers to to um, live up to not speak any dead words. And then uh, Ru Jing, um, Master Dogen's teacher, he says, from the beginning the Dharma wheel has turned with nothing in excess and nothing lacking. The sweet dew of perfection saturates all. Everything is true, everything is real. So even when we tell a lie, there's a truth in that. There's a truth in the sense of, our own inner process our own sense of separation (coughs) right there so even falsehoods can teach us if we if we pay attention to them they certainly certainly other people will see into us in that way too so so even the false has a truth to it last one not to cause others to take intoxicants nor to do so myself but to keep the mind pure now this one's a it's a bit ungainly in its phrasing not to take uh, cause others to take intoxicants nor to do so myself but to keep the mind pure and the original is much shorter shorter it just says don't sell alcohol basically but it's interesting because traditionally it's more seri- seen as being a more serious infraction to sell alcohol, to deal in it, to, to make money from selling it, than it is to consume it oneself. And the, the reason is that this is exploitative, you're, you're gaining from somebody else's harm basically. And originally it did refer to, to alcohol but we we widen it to cons- cons- to include um, other kinds of drugs that are um, damaging that 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 impair our clarity, because the point here is the p- last part to keep the mind pure to keep to keep our awareness. And we could also include other things like um, anything that's addictive. Really, we can we can slot in here um, that becomes compulsive. Um, gaming, uh, gambling, um, pornography, um, screen violence is another one. People making films have to make make the violence worse and worse to keep people's interest. Um, sometimes people ask whether this means can I not have a drink of wine with my dinner, and um, some teachers do interpret this as, as meaning zero alcohol. It's harmful, don't have it, it's stay away. But uh, my teacher would sometimes have half a beer with a pizza or half a glass of wine with food. And the, the principle here is what, is what can you have that's still not intoxicating or harmful, no, no harm is done. But if we if we're sitting right after our dinner, we'll notice we'll probably notice that that still notice that half glass of wine that our mind won't be quite so so sharp. Um, but again, these are not these are not um, black and white. Um, again, the 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 the. the um, Principle is a higher standard than simply avoiding alcohol, but really to keep our minds pure, to notice when we get into into different activities which dull the mind. Um, mindless watching of stuff on the internet might be an example, or or even certain kinds of reading that we do. Um, coming up with a with a Mahayana interpretation of this um, this is just a, a minor example but um, you're with a friend who's got a bottle of wine and you share it with him so that he doesn't drink the whole bottle himself <laughs> <laughs> you split you split the intoxication two ways or more and then finally um, since I, since the time is, is nearly up the Bodhidharmas, one mind precept here. Self nature is inconceivably wondrous. In the intrinsically pure Dharma, not allowing the mind to become dark through ignorance is called the precept of refraining from taking intoxicants. Not allowing the mind to become dark through ignorance. And Yasutani Roshi comments, everything is Buddha nature. Even the true nature of ignorance is just Buddha nature. The root of ignorance is our misconception of the self. We see through eyes blinded by selfishness. With the realization of no self, everything is seen as original Buddha nature. Ordinary individuals handle Buddha nature and experience great peace and happiness. But these are the dead words of interpretation demonstrate the living thing. And that's our job. That's what we're here to do, to demonstrate the living thing, the truth of everything being nothing but Buddha nature, living out of that truth. We'll stop here and recite the four vows.
0: All beings without number I vow to liberate endless blind passions I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha I vow to attain all all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gains beyond. teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.